Hi, I'm Stephanie Liu. And I'm Sophie Yoss. If you struggle to keep up with the ever-changing news cycle, or you just aren't sure why you should care, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to The Outside In. We are going to talk about those pressing, prominent news stories that take up our news cycles for weeks, even months at a time. Plus, we're going to explain how those stories relate back to our campus here at Wake Forest. We'll be breaking down the big headlines and talking to experts from Wake about the effects of those stories in our community. This week, we are discussing the war in Ukraine and answering questions like, why now, what's next, and why is it important? And, as always, we'll explain how this seemingly faraway problem is relevant to you right here in Winston-Salem. Well, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. To start, if you could just tell us your name, what you do, and maybe where you went to college. Yes, I am Shane Harris. I cover intelligence and national security for the Washington Post. And I am a 1998 graduate of Wake Forest University. Love it. So today, as you know, we're going to be talking about the war in Ukraine. So um, a question for you, how did we get to this point? And for people who aren't familiar with the history of Russia-Ukraine relations, what is the essential context that they should know? Well, it's a long history. Maybe a good way just to start is to remind people that before Ukraine was an independent country, it was a member of the Soviet Union. So it was one of the Soviet republics. But obviously, the history between Russia and Ukraine and the peoples go back many, many, many years. There are strong cultural linkages between people in Russia and in Ukraine, but Ukraine also has a distinct identity and its own distinct history. And this has become important in the present conflict because Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, doesn't really see Ukraine as an independent country. He sees it as something that was always properly belonging to Russia. It was always Russian. And this is very much at the center of the conflict. You can go back to really the days right before Putin ordered his force to invade Ukraine, where he gave this kind of stem winder of a speech in which he asserted that Ukraine is not a real country, and he's made other similar baseless kinds of claims before. Vladimir Putin would like, I think, most people in the world believe that he is invading Ukraine because he is trying to stop NATO from expanding its reach and its influence, because he sees that as a threat to Russia. And Ukraine has tried to join the NATO alliance. This, of course, is the post-World War II alliance of the U.S. and Britain and European countries members of, including member, a number of former Soviet republics, that famously says that an attack on one member is an attack on all members, and we would come to each other's tents. And Ukraine has wanted to join NATO. That has been problematic for a number of reasons. They have not joined it. There are other analysts, and I ascribe to this theory, that believe that that's nonsense, that it's not really NATO that he's scared of, because NATO is a defensive alliance. NATO has never attacked Russia and doesn't pose a security threat to Russia, arguably. What Putin is really worried about is democratic uprisings in his own country. And he looks back at 2014 and sees the popular uprising, the democratic protests that took place in Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, that overthrew a government that was friendly to Russia, that was friendly to the Kremlin. And the thinking is that Putin doesn't want to see that happening in Russia. And there's a lot of evidence that he's deeply paranoid about protests. And of course, he has violently suppressed dissent in Russia, including trying to murder leading activists. So in 2014, Russia invaded Ukraine for the first time. They seized Crimea, the peninsula in the south. They then set up kind of a quasi-occupation in parts of the east. And there had long been this concern that Putin was going to try one day to come for the whole of Ukraine. 
And ultimately, that's where we are now. And, you know, he has tried to mount this campaign to topple the democratically elected Lviv, led by Volodymyr Zelensky, who has kind of become a household name now. And the aim of his campaign, although he says differently, seems to have been to try and conquer Ukraine and if not make it part of Russia formally to install another puppet government that was friendly to Putin. That's the backstory. That's kind of how the quick version of how we got. Right. So why did diplomacy not work then? Well, do you mean in the run up to the war in Ukraine? Yes. I think that probably the reason that diplomacy failed was because Putin had no interest in diplomacy. He seems to have thought, and he may have been to some degree misled by his military advisors here, that it would be relatively easy to go in, conquer Ukraine, take the capital and effectively troll the country. Do that in a matter of eight. The miscalculations we can talk about maybe later, but, you know, he didn't want to negotiate a settlement. As he saw it, Ukraine was there for the taking. And there are some people who, I mean, looking in hindsight, you know, is there more that Ukraine could have done? Is there more the West could have done to try and give him concessions to try and, you know, kind of come to some kind of agreement? You know, probably if, if there was one to be reached, Putin might have said, all right, I will mass all my forces on the border. I'm threatening to invade you, which he had been doing or South Paul in winter. And maybe force Ukraine to come to the table and perhaps say, these two important breakaway republics in the East, let them have a referendum where they want to join Russia. Now, that presupposes that Putin never intended to come in and conquer Ukraine. And so I think ultimately, and kind of second guess it a little bit in hindsight, I'm not sure that there was ever really a viable diplomatic solution. Maybe we'll learn more as time goes on, but it seems from everything we know that Putin always obeyed and he wasn't interested in negotiating. So how did the U.S. not really see this coming? Or in other words, it's like, why was the world taken by surprise? Well, I think the U.S. did see it coming. Notably, you know, the U.S. intelligence community and the British intelligence community, they assessed based on their observations and on their intelligence they gathered that there was a probably 70 to 75 percent likelihood that Russia was going to invade. Uh, you're quite right to point out that there were lots of other people in the world who were taken surprise by this, though. Notably, a lot of our allies in Europe. The Germans were very skeptical that Russia was actually going to follow through with this, so much so actually that the head of German intelligence was in Kiev the day the invasion started uh, because he was not convinced that it was actually going to happen and he had to get out of there very quickly. The French were skeptical as well, and President Macron also tried very hard to work negotiations and find some kind of peaceful settlement. But I think that most people who were surprised genuinely, and maybe even you know some lawmakers and maybe even some officials, were so surprised because they thought, why on earth would Putin want to do this? You know, it's everyone who thought that he was going to invade, or even those who thought he wouldn't invade, thought that it would be a very tough slog. Um, I think nobody predicted that the Ukrainians would fight this hard, but nobody thought that it was just going to be a cakewalk, and that one. Once Putin took the country, even if he did that in relatively short order, what was he going to do? Was he going to occupy Ukraine? Was he going to try and hold it? And of course, importantly, the Biden administration and our allies in Europe had said very explicitly, publicly to Putin, if you invade, we are going to absolutely level you with economic sanctions. We're going to throw everything we have at you. So he knew this. And I think that a lot of people thought Putin's not stupid. He's not crazy. He's just blustering. I remember talking to officials in the Ukrainian government in the days before the invasion who thought Putin was bluffing. The Ukraine didn't think he was. So, you know, I think that it was largely based on the fact that people just couldn't imagine he would try something so audacious that had so much risk. And at the end of the day, it's exactly what he did. And, you know, I think that he's paying a very, very big price for it now. 
So on that note of economic sanctions, it's clear that the U.S. can do things to curtail Russia's efforts, but obviously only up to a certain point. What is that line that we can't cross and how do we support countries without making more war? Well, the line that the Biden administration has set, and importantly, this is one that all of the NATO allies are in agreement on, is that we're not going to put military forces on the ground, no boots on the ground. We're also not going to enforce what's known as a no-fly zone. This is something that the, the Ukrainian government very badly wants. And the idea here would be that NATO member aircraft and anti-aircraft weapons would be used to patrol the skies around Ukraine to ensure that no Russian planes were flying through those planes that go and bomb targets. Well, to enforce a no-fly zone, you have to shoot down the aircraft that are violating it. And of course, if American planes are then shooting down Russian aircraft, we are arguably at war with Russia. And the fear is that that would escalate very, very quickly into a much bigger war with many more casualties. And of course, the greatest fear underlying all of this is that Russia, perhaps in a moment of desperation or in sort of some kind of misguided strategy, would try to use a nuclear weapon. Russia is a nuclear power. And this is what we're trying to avoid effectively is some kind of third world war or major conflict in Europe. So that's where officials have drawn the line. Now, the question then becomes like, how close can you get to the line? We are sending huge amounts of missiles and anti-tank weapons and aircraft weapons. Ukraine is using them on the ground. We are providing them drones, we're giving them equipment, we are giving them money, we're not giving them aircraft. And this kind of weird line has been drawn around the in the US are asking like, well, wait a second, we're giving them missiles they can fire on their shoulders to blow up tanks and kill troops, but we won't let them have airplanes and go blow up tanks and kill troops. And the problem here, as the US sees it, is that Russia looks at what we're providing in terms of weapons and says, okay, got it, like soldiers firing tanks, but they would probably see that as a defensive weapon. Giving them an aircraft, which they could then the Ukrainians could fly into Russia, it targets in Russia. The Russians might see that as more of an overt act of aggression, offense, not defense. And so the fear is that if you offer too many weapons to the Ukrainians that the Russians think of as offensive weapons, then you also might start to start this larger war. So these are kind of the lines that the U.S. is having to play with right now. And the Ukrainians look at that and say, that's all great. But in the meantime, like we are facing an existential threat. Our country is, you know, at Overrun. Since the war broke out, a number of international corporations have cut relations with Russia. What impact has this had on Russia and its allies? Well, I think it's had a significant impact. You look just broadly at the Russian economy and you include all the sanctions that have, that have taken place. The value of the ruble has plummeted. It was already getting pretty low. Western countries have seized or frozen, I should say, the assets of Russia's central banks. So the currency reserves it keeps in foreign central banks around the world. That's about half a trillion dollars in cash that the Russians cannot access right now. The effect of these companies pulling out, you know, it means there are certain goods and services the Russians can no longer get. It means that people who were employed in Russia by those companies no longer have jobs. Some of it might be symbolic. Uh, some of it might actually end up hurting the companies more than hurts the Russians. But broadly speaking, these sanctions, I think they are having a pretty significant bite. The question is, to what degree did Putin anticipate this and sort of take steps to, as some people would say, sanction-proof his economy? There's pretty good evidence that he thought that the sanctions wouldn't be this severe. I mean, otherwise, why did he leave so much money in foreign currency reserves sitting abroad where it could just be frozen? I think he thought the West would never go that far. But these sanctions are making it more difficult for Russia to raise money. They're making it more difficult for them to move money around. They're making it more difficult for them to buy money to keep its military upgraded. 
depleted and in good shape and the military clearly has been underperforming. So I think that long term, these do have a significant impact. And it's going to be really interesting to see if Ukraine comes to a peace deal with Russia, is Russia as part of that deal going to demand that the West also lift some of these sanctions? Remember, Ukraine didn't impose these sanctions. The US and its allies did. And it's up to them to lift them. And we will see whether Russia demands that as an exchange for stopping hostilities. Great. Okay. So as a reporter, as a member of the media, how are you able to fact check reporting when things are moving so quickly and there's so much disinformation going around? It's a great question. It's always hard in the middle of a crisis and particularly in the middle of a war to verify information because so much is coming at you from reports on the battlefield to what our correspondents in Ukraine are seeing to just the huge amount of information on social media being posted by Ukrainian citizens, by governments, by Russian forces who have been posting things on various channels. What we try to do is, as quickly as we can, find corroborating sources for that information. So maybe it's an official in a government who can say, yes, we're seeing that too. We believe it's credible based on our intelligence sources or like on satellite. For videos that get posted, we have a whole team actually at the Washington Post that just does video verification where they look at the metadata, things that they can learn from geotagging and try to come to some conclusion on whether it is likely an authentic video or whether it's just something being repurposed for some kind of propaganda campaign or whether it's just somebody, you know, sending something out. So the best thing to do is just kind of take a breath when new information comes in and focus first on getting it right, getting it right quickly and verifying it rather than just trying to push it out there without verifying it. So we're fortunate here at the paper that we have, you know, dozens of reporters who are working on this. So it's not as though a handful of us only have to be doing all of this work all the time. We can really spread that labor out, which is great because then that frees up me, for instance, to go do original reporting, talking to my sources and getting ready to craft articles, that I have more time and a bit more breathing room to do those. I don't have to be responding to every single thing. Yeah, that's reassuring that, you know, that responsibility is taken so seriously. So the concept of soft war includes things like cyber attacks, sanctions, propaganda, and other ways of influencing populations. Do people underestimate the power of soft war? Well, I think they do. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting to me that we haven't seen more cyber attacks actually in this conflict, that we haven't seen Russia launching attacks to sort of you know, do things like take out electrical grids in Ukraine, which we know that they can do, seen them do this, or even launching attacks on American computer networks in retaliation. If you want to think about propaganda broadly, and it often has a negative connotation, but we can just sort of strip out the value connotation for a second and think maybe broadly about information operations, if you want to think about that way. Ukraine has been masterful in this. I mean, we can just look at the way that Volodymyr Zelensky records these telegram messages and these videos when he's in his bunker and he's in the green tactical t-shirt sitting there at the desk, where he has become this kind of heroic figure and has rallied world attention, and he has rallied support from citizens in countries all around the world, and clearly is bolstering his own people, importantly. This is very improbable. I mean, most people know this maybe by now, but you know, before Vladimir Zelensky was president of Ukraine, he was a famous comedian in Ukraine who played on a television show a man who unlikely becomes the president of Ukraine. And most Americans probably know him from the famous phone call that he had with President Trump, where 
President Trump was trying to extract political investigations and favors from Zelensky in exchange for providing aid. Um, and of course, that phone call got President Trump impeached first time. So this character who's kind of existed out there in the popular imagination as this weird kind of role in this chapter of American political history suddenly becomes this leader standing up to Russia. He is the David facing Goliath, and he has used social media and information to tell that story and push that out there. And I think that that's worth keeping in mind. The United States also did this from the run before the war. The Biden administration had classified intelligence or top secret intelligence about what Russia was up to in its plans, and they started declassifying that and releasing that in the press. I reported one of those stories. That was also a way of using information to shape a narrative and not necessarily to try and deter Putin from invading, but to alert the world, this is what he's up to, so that if he does do it, he can't say, oh, Ukraine forced me to do it, or we were attacked first. You kind of try to shape that information environment, because in that environment is how countries make decisions on how to act, right? You could argue that the United States, in rallying support against Russia before the invasion, made it easier to levy those very, very significant sanctions. And so I think this is another example of how that kind of the soft power, as you put it, is really important and has big consequences in how hard power ultimately is wielded. So then shifting to more of the local standpoint, in what ways is this war affecting the everyday lives of Americans that may not be as obvious as gas prices? Well, you, you picked the obvious one, right? <laughs> I just filled up my car this morning and it was, it was oh. 50% more than usual. That's the big one. The other ways that it might be affecting Americans' lives they might not necessarily immediately understand. Um, there's kind of broadly destabilization effects, things like financial markets and the ability to move goods around the world. Ukraine is a major producer of grain, actually. Already, I, friends of mine who I talked to in Germany are seeing shortages of flour, shortages of cooking oil produced in Ukraine. So you might see kind of these consumer goods and things that we rely on every day becoming harder to find. Maybe not so much in the United States because we produce a lot of our own grain, obviously. This is probably more a local story for people in Europe, but to some degree in the United States. The just astonishing number of Ukrainians who have been turned into refugees or have become internally displaced. The United Nations estimates that 25% of the Ukrainian population has been displaced in some way or another. That is just extraordinary. I mean, to think about tens of millions of people now have no home and millions of them are fleeing for refuge in other countries. That is a, an incredibly destabilizing uh, thing as well. In addition to just being an absolute humanitarian catastrophe, like that objectively is a terrible thing. That these poor people can't go home and are fleeing for their lives with their children and, and their possessions. So that, you know, affects people too. At the end of the day, Americans probably are not going to feel the burden or the impact of this as acutely and, and chronically as I think people in Europe probably will. And gas prices are a way that Americans can kind of take a quick temperature of how they're feeling about things and the economy and the state of the world. Gas prices are up. Inflation is up. You know, people are feeling pretty pessimistic right now. And I think that when they just they see a war and the threat of a bigger war out there looming on the horizon, I think that also shapes the way they think about their own lives and the confidence they have about the future. Yeah, speaking to how people feel about the war, is the war something that college students should be thinking about or worried about? And what can we do? Well, I don't think you should worry. You know, I think in general, it's never good to worry. But thinking about it, absolutely, yes. Because what we're looking at right now is a fundamental change in the nature of global security and the balance of power as it exists between Russia, Europe, the United States. And of course, China is a huge factor in all of this. 
So you're witnessing this kind of realignment and this shuffling of security in the world. And that has ramifications in every effect of our lives, you know, how safe we are, how easily we can move around, economies, lives, fortunes, all these things. So certainly, you know, as college students who are preparing to embark into your lives in the world, absolutely, you should be following this and thinking about how it's going to change the world that we live in. I was a teenager. It was at the this sort of twilight period of the Cold War. I was in high school when the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed a few years later. But growing up in that period, we really feared that there was a chance, maybe not a chance, but a chance nonetheless, that we would all die in a nuclear war. And, you know, the story of the late Cold War was this period of high tension between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and people fearing a third world war. But then ultimately this great hope that came about when countries became democratic, the wall came down, the Soviet Union dissolved. And it's just so striking to me now to think that was that period between the end of the Cold War and now just kind of an intermission. And that what we're coming back to now, where we do have to be afraid that the country with their weapons, where we see a big war in Europe that is killing so many people and displacing so many people with the threat that Putin could attack another country. Wars tend to often not stay contained for very long. And in Europe, they don't stay, not easily, not without some intervention. So it's just, it's striking to me now to think about that. And your age at Wake Forest, it was truly this period where things were changing. Europe was becoming more democratic and open to free trade. And it just seemed like the future was very bright and full of possibilities. And now it just seems so much grimmer and sadder. So to wrap, what's the latest? Should we feel reassured at all by the recent talks between Russia and Ukraine about scaling back their military operations? I think we can be cautiously optimistic, right? There are some signs that the Ukrainians and the Russians are, well, they are negotiating. That's important. They're talking. That's a great step. Uh, and there are signs that they are both willing to put some things on the table and start negotiating over that. It's important to always remember that Russia often says one thing and does another. They have not fully stopped their attacks on cities, notably Kiev and another nearby major city, which they had said they were going to dramatically scale down their military assaults. I guess dramatically is in the eye of the beholder. I think that there's some chance for this. I mean, Ukraine seems to be willing to do is say, we might be willing to declare neutrality, essentially say we would not take a part in a conflict, which I, I think would mean implicitly means you cannot join NATO. Because if you're in NATO, you have to commit to going to war if another member says it's not a neutral agreement. So no joining of NATO, neutrality, and in exchange, they want some security guarantees from countries west and in the United States as well, that they would come to their assistance if Russia invaded. And then we'll see what Russia is, is willing to concede here. Will they stop killing people? Will they stop the invasion? Will they pull their forces back? Will they focus on the East? Will they leave entirely? This all remains to be seen, but I think that there are some glimmers of hope. So that's some reason to be optimistic. Yes. Great. Well, thank you so much, Shane. Thank that you. was awesome. I guess for fun, if you have time, if you want to share what your favorite class at Wake was. My favorite class. Wow. Um, or memory. So, well, my favorite memories are from being the little banshees, which I was in the early, early OG banshees. Um, <laughs> I'm very proud of be happy to see the troop going into a strong day. I was a politics major, even though I spent a lot of my time with troop and a lot of my time in the theater, Wake Forest Theater. I took a class my senior year. It was a seminar class for the major. Everybody had the seminars for your requirement. Uh, and it was um, Kathy Smith's class in political communication. And I was just fascinated by it on its own. We looked a lot at, you know, not just like how politicians use rhetoric on the campaign trail, but the role of the media. Uh, at the time, cable news was really dominant. 
or is this the late 90s? This is before the internet really takes over, you know, how we get information. And it was just so fascinating to think about how the media played a role in how we interact with our government, how we think about government and the world. And I swear, like the things that I learned in that class became like bedrock, just principles that ended up informing my career as a journalist. And I did not know I wanted to be a journalist. I, I had no interest in going into journalism. I didn't write for the old Golden Black. And I was just fascinated by it. Though. And then a couple of years later, when I became a journalist, I looked back at that class. Oh, wow, that class really prepared me really well and gave me some ground level kind of basics for how to think about what journalists do and the role that we play in our democracy. And uh, it stuck with me ever since. Awesome. Well, it definitely served you well. Well, thank you. And thanks for the chance to come talk to you guys and keep up the great work. That's it. Thanks for listening to this episode. Shout out to our audio producer, Fir Gupta, for help, and a special thanks to Cooper Sullivan for extra help on this episode. For more resources on this topic and ways to help, check out our show notes. See you next time on The Outside In.